with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China's expansion of the opening up process, along with open, inclusive economic globalization. And we will also discuss how the EU will deal with its energy crunch this winter. And now, let's begin with our top story. China has pledged to expand its all-round opening up and to strive for open and inclusive economic globalization. An official with China's top economic regulator says it's wrong to think that by focusing on its domestic economy, China will scale back its opening up efforts. Zhao Chenxin made the remarks at a press conference held on the sidelines of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. The deputy director of the National Development and Reform Commission described the economic globalization as an irreversible trend. China's foreign trade has consistently beat market expectations. In the first eight months of this year, China's foreign trade surged more than 10% to 27.3 trillion yuan, or 3.8 trillion U.S. dollars. So for more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Liu Baocheng, Professor with the University of International Business and Economics. So first, Baocheng, in the first eight months of this year, China's foreign trade surged more than 10%. So what are some of the main reasons for the rapid growth of the foreign trade despite the external headwinds? One is still the Chinese economic fundamentals are still very competitive. The productivity, particularly for the export-led manufacturer industry, is still uh, going on uh, very well. And uh, the other is that uh, China is uh, uh, introducing a slew of measures uh, to support uh, the export drive by, uh, you know, uh, boosting the uh, Chinese export structure, uh, offering subsidies for high-end uh, manufacture in order for uh, better add-value val- uh, add exports, and uh, also the uh, the Chinese private businesses are being supported also uh, uh, on more equal basis with the uh, state-owned ones. Uh, for example, they contribute more than. 50% of the Chinese export drive. So, uh, and then, you know, the uh, entry uh, uh, barrier have, uh, being further reduced by introducing the negative list for uh, foreign direct investment uh, so that they also add to our uh, continuous export drive. And then uh, there are also a number of projects that are, are there to uh, cater to the global marketplace that are being built in China, either for, by foreign investment or by joint ventures. Mm. And then, so as Bao mentioned, China's export performance has consistently beat the market expectations. So when we take a look at the exports to ASEAN countries, the numbers were particularly strong. So tell us more about China's trade with ASEAN countries. What do you see as the main pillar of the economic vitality in this region? Uh, ASEAN countries has been a very important component in the Asian supply chain centering around China. After 2020, uh, ASEAN basically became the largest trading partner with uh, China uh, for a few reasons. One of the most important ones is that China is going through this industrial upgrade. 
so that some of the lower value added supply chain has relocated to ASEAN countries like Vietnam and Cambodia. And on top of that, there is also this transition um, from producing the final consumer goods to intermediate industrial goods. And in this process, the integration between China and ASEAN countries are actually strengthened um, because uh, although we see more of the clothing and shoes or toys produced in other ASEAN countries, their import from China in terms of cotton yarns, other raw materials, other type of industrial inputs are also surging. And in a way, um, that surging is a reflection of China's upgrade, but also uh, improvement of the ASEAN countries' uh, living standard in general. Uh, let me add, uh, the on top of uh, what Dan has mentioned is that uh, uh, China entered into the 10 plus 1 or CAFTA agreement with ASEAN and has been uh, very successful. Now it's uh, largely converted into the uh, RCEP, uh, which is the uh, free trade zone with uh, uh, 14 countries altogether. And uh, the there has been dramatic reduction of uh, tariff, uh, which is uh, uh, there to boost the imports and export and also the facilitation at the custom house, at the inspection centers, uh, also there to uh, reduce the uh, cost of doing business between China and ASEAN. So these are really also uh, contributors uh, based on the uh, regional integration program. And mm-hmm. Baocheng, what do you make of the China's trade with US and Europe? Well, despite of all the outcry to diverse, uh, to diversify from China and reduce the dependency, uh, this does not work because these are really the political rhetorics. Businesses have their own formula to uh, make their own decision. So therefore, we do see that uh, uh, over the uh, past eight months, the uh, trade with the U.S. has uh, increased by uh, more than 12 percent, with EU by uh, more than 13 percent. And uh, uh, now, you know, Chinese supply chain uh, shows is rather resilient uh, on the supply side and the on the demand side. Uh, U.S. and EU are facing a number of headwinds, be it inflation, be it uh, energy crisis. So consumers do need it. And uh, uh, so uh, politicians are under, uh, you know, two type of uh, uh, opposing pressures. One is on the business side and household side to uh, further reduce the barriers uh, for the Chinese uh, imports and uh, uh, some of the politicians and uh, some of the competing industries are proposing a tougher measure uh, against the Chinese imports. So uh, they have to make a fine trade-off over the political consideration and also business consideration. Mm. And for China's foreign trade, China has also launched its first free trade zone in Shanghai in 2013 to attract foreign investment and promote trade and regional integration. Now we have 21 free trade zones across the country. So then what experiences can be drawn from China's free trade zone development, do you think? Uh, China's free trade zones have always at the forefront of China's opening up. Uh, we have seen tons of foreign investments into those zones, uh, taking advantage of the lower taxes, more favorable policies. But more importantly, there's also the technological transfer and collaboration between foreign investors and domestic producers. 
Uh, the free trade zone is not just a poster kit of how strong the opening up demand is, but also shows this important uh, transition from the investment-led, export-led economy to a more innovation-driven economy. Because when we look at what's happening in Shanghai, it is not just manufacturing anymore. There's a lot of drive for financial opening up, uh, taking advantage of uh, the position of Shanghai as international financial hub uh, to facilitate the upgrades of China's financial uh, system so that it would align with international standards and also can pilot a lot of experiments in things like uh, internationalization of R&D and different channels to open up China's capital account. Mm. And so, Bao Cheng, what do you think are the future development priorities of China's trade sector in terms of uh, achieving the high-quality development in all aspects? Uh, number one is that uh, uh, in actually in April, uh, China launched the uh, campaign to unify the Chinese domestic market, uh, which is uh, uh, very important because uh, you know by uh, removing a number of uh, political and also other type of invisible barriers between uh, cities, between provinces, uh, is uh, you know something that is important to. Uh, uh, to facilitate the free flow of all economic factors. But that does not mean that China is going to retreat in its cocoon of isolation because, uh, you know, by, uh, uh, by introducing a better rule of law, by uh, streamlining uh, the uh, Chinese market, it's, uh, 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 they're uh, better prepared for collaborating with the rest of the world and foreign uh, foreign investments and also international trade. So uh, that's uh, uh, one very important direction. And the other is uh, continue to shorten the negative list for uh, foreign investment into China. And uh, actually in May, uh, NDRC has also launched a, a list to incentivize the foreign investment into China. And uh, as a result, we do see that uh, a number of uh, mega projects are uh, flocked into China. Uh, for example, BAS, BASF has the Eslin uh, projects in Zhenjiang, which accounts for 10, uh, 10 billion US dollars. And uh, now the uh, Chinese uh, small and medium-sized businesses are also playing a very important role, particularly in the area of e-commerce. And so the uh, government is there also to support uh, their, their export drive. So uh, looking ahead, we uh, still have uh, confidence. And uh, uh, now when the Chinese market, when Chinese productivity uh, are getting uh, more integrated, uh, we can really see a bright future. And in addition, that China is seeking for its membership with CPTPP, which is a a higher level of uh, regional integration. So uh, in terms of the entire business environment, uh, China is really on a rapid improvement side. Mm. So then China remains a top destination for the foreign direct investment, despite all the uncertainties we've seen in the global economy. So Bao Cheng mentioned the uh, BASF's uh, Zhenjiang projects. And what do you think, what industries are receiving the bulk of this investment? And what new opportunities are here for foreign direct investment? Um, the foreign direct investment has 
changed its pattern uh, in the past decade quite dramatically. Uh, after COVID, in fact, we see a great acceleration of FDI into China's emerging industries and also uh, advanced manufacturing uh, in terms of machinery um, because it's closely related with China's uh, national strategy in developing hard technology. And we see uh, the, the, the great development in um, new material, new energy industry, upstream and downstream. Mm. And for foreign investors, they used to be focusing on China's domestic property market, construction, but now their focus is, is mainly on those high-tech-related emerging industries. Mm. So, Bao Chen, we've talked about the FDI, the foreign trade. And at the opening session of the 20th National Congress of the CPC, Xi Jinping said that China must continue to focus on the real economy in pursuing the economic growth. So why is developing the real economy critical for China at this moment? Oh, the world is uh, experiencing asset bubble because of the uh, hefty stimulus package over the uh, COVID. And now, you know, the uh, bankers realize that, uh, you know, we are offering a, another uh, recession and also uh, uh, possibly stagflation. So China, uh, you know, to a certain degree is no exception. And uh, there has been too much of the money game and uh, the uh, financial platforms have been too pervasive in uh, many of those uh, uh, areas, and they uh, do not really uh, are there to translate into real productivity. So therefore, uh, you know, to entrench the uh, solidarity of the Chinese economic growth, uh, so real economy is still the key. Mm. And uh, uh, now the more of the uh, uh, Chinese businesses are shifting uh, to uh, real economy, but uh, with a uh, high orientation towards the high quality development by introducing more uh, technological innovation, by uh, training the uh, workers, and uh, uh, that can really repel uh, the possible financial bubbles and asset bubbles. So uh, this is the way to go. And for uh, particularly for China with such a large population and market, we cannot just uh, you know, live in the fantasy of the financial world, and real economy will be there to provide the uh, better safety belt for all our people. Mm -hmm. So that real economy is the key, but what can be done to ensure that the financial industry play a supporting role to the real economy? The financial industry, uh, especially banking system in China, has been the main enabler to implement major national policies and provide liquidity to both the state sector and the private sector. Um, and it seems that now the financial industry is also going into transition um, because their assets were dominantly uh, focusing on the traditional industries, uh, like especially in property. Um, but now uh, there is a heightened stress in uh, focusing on the green transition so for every bank in China, um, they're allocating more of the resources to uh, the industries like in the power batteries, uh, the new energy vehicles, on some of the most advanced technologies related with new materials and pharmaceuticals. And this transition is difficult 
because it would involve a different pricing model. Because uh, when you consider uh, the decision to land, the risk factor is the most important. And these industries, because they're new, they're more risky than the traditional ones.、Mm. Um, but I think it also provides incentive for China's financial system to upgrade and try to figure out a new solution、uh, to provide、uh, the kind of the right financing. For the real economy,、mm. and then so manufacturing remains the backbone of the real economy in China. So, how is upgrading the manufacturing sector related to China's high quality development goals?、Um, the、uh, manufacturing sector is at the center of reaching this high development and high quality growth model,、um, because China now is striving to realize. Um, the innovation-based economy,、mm. and that means we have to focus on technology.、Uh, technology would require、uh, the right kind of talent and enough capital to support the type of investment.、Um, and so far,、uh, China has been pushing for using things more like industrial robots, automation, and smart management in the manufacturing process. In the largest provinces,、uh, in terms of export, like Shandong,、uh, Guangdong, or Zhejiang,、uh, many of the mid-sized and large-scale factories have done so quite successfully.、Um, but the vast majority of China's manufacturing supply chain are dominated by、uh, smaller producers, and how to help them to also realize a certain level of automation and smart manufacturing will be the key. Mm. So we're speaking with Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Liu Baocheng, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. And after a short break, we'll take a look at how the EU will deal with its energy crunch this winter. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Changen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the Independent Taihe Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So, join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Ren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China, and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The European Commission has proposed another set of emergency measures to tackle high energy prices, but it doesn't include an immediate cap on gas prices, as EU countries remain split over the idea. Germany has opposed the price cap and suggested tackling energy shortages through the joint purchase and increasing supplies. So today we also discuss the current situation of the energy supply in Europe. Is the euro prepared for the coming winter, and how will the EU deal with the energy shortage in the long and short terms? So then, first of all, what is the public reaction to the rising energy prices and the series of policies that the governments in the euro? Have taken to deal with the energy crunch at this moment. 
Uh, the general sentiment in Europe is a huge disappointment from the public um, because the inflation rate has been high for a very long time, and there's a lack of policy response. Uh, although major uh, European central banks, including ECB and the British central bank, have raised the rates, but it's uh, way uh, it's way short in terms of expectation. Um, there is no uh, concrete measures to bring down the short-term inflation. So when we look at uh, what's going on in uh, particularly right now in the UK, um, there's a complete chaos. And I just don't think the politicians actually have sufficient tools at this point or determination to attack inflation. German Chancellor Schulz said that the Germans' uh, energy supply is prepared, but uh, how well prepared is Germany, along with a number of other EU nations, for an energy cut? Um, the latest figure is that the uh, EU is in better preparation, uh, preparation now than a few months ago, because now the storage is about 92 percent uh, in terms of its uh, full capacity. Uh, so to tie them over through this winter should be sufficient. But the real question is what's going to happen next year. Uh, a lot of those new supply in terms of uh, oil and uh, um, gas are from uh, the U.S. and other countries like Qatar. Um, but uh, the sustainability is uh, quite questionable since Russia is essentially irreplaceable when it mm. comes to the energy supply at a reasonable price. Mm. So I would say that this year they're relatively well prepared, including Germany, but not really next year. Mm. And so, Bao Cheng, because the EU is home to many high-end manufacturing companies, how do you think this energy shortage may reshape the economic landscape of the EU in the short term and in the long run? Definitely, the businesses are paying far higher prices, so therefore they're going to uh, further inflate the uh, consumption in the end, uh, because such sort of cost will be translated to individual households. And uh, uh, the other is that uh, we do see a boost of uh, uh, European businesses to invest, uh, particularly in the Asian Pacific uh, uh, countries, and because. Uh, you know, their uh, energy uh, supply is on the high side and also uh, they can be more closer to the uh, consumption market in the Asian Pacific region. And, uh, and then, you know, hopefully that can really uh, help them to uh, have a, a strong uh, acceleration uh, in terms of the uh, green energy innovation. And uh, so that's something that's very dialectical. And, uh, you know, if they really have a breakthrough, the whole world can really benefit. But right now, I think it's more of the European businesses are facing. And so uh, through a better reallocation, so a more concentration of a supply chain in Asia, and that is the solution. And then, so a senior official from the UN called for EU nations not to tend to more fossil fuels as there is no space for stepping back on climate change. So what do you think can the EU do here to keep reaching its environmental goals, its carbon neutrality goals? Well, there's a very obvious step back uh, in terms of the uh, climate change agenda in the EU. 
And by the amount of their import from China, this is quite clear, um, because they're importing more energy-intensive uh, equipment from China, and also more of energy-intensive products uh, like glass, fertilizers, and steel. Um, but usually, when we look at their bundle of imports, uh, it is the green products that are growing the fastest, like solar and wind products. Uh, I don't think their setback is permanent, but this year and next year will be extremely difficult for them, since we have already seen their use of uh, coal has been increasing. Um, and their transition, uh, their successful transition in the future, will largely depend on how much they can install new solar and wind power. Um, and that would very much re- be reliant on China. Um, in the past decade, this trend has been quite um, apparent. Uh, even in 2021, the EU's import of green products from China almost doubled. And in the first half of the year in 2022, this number also grew significantly, more than 150% increase in terms of solar panels, for example. So mm-hmm. this trend, I believe, will resume after the energy crisis is over. But that probably will push us to uh, 2024 or even the year after that. Mm-hmm. And then so we're also seeing a plan in Europe of setting a windfall tax for those energy suppliers who made a lot of profits. So what is the tax and will that work? Uh, it could work in terms of uh, uh, reducing the energy price uh, in EU and also to give those companies a warning that they cannot take advantage of this situation. Um, but uh, I don't think it would help much to bring down inflation in general. Um, so far, the monetary policy doesn't work that well, and actually the price control would have worked better, and it will put more constraints on those energy, traditional energy companies as well. The government has been worrying about a shortage in energy because as soon as you put on the price control, uh, you'll have to you'll have to do some other type of relocation in order to make sure that everyone needs energy can get their fair share of the quota. Um, but if we look at the history in the 1980s under Reagan administration in the U.S., price control worked quite well to bring down inflation. So even if the European government do not really like the economic consequence of shortage of price control they might have to revert to it at some point. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Liu Baocheng, Professor with the University of International Business and Economics. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.